This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Thursday, October 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The other day, Bill Maher asked his guests, why do Democrats keep losing? His theory? Political correctness. You know the show that Bill Maher used to host, right? Okay. So his panel kind of took the bait. They blamed either some political correctness or just debated the idea of political correctness. The patriarchy and entrenched white supremacy were also mentioned. I can't prove most of those things. Some of them seem a little true. Some of them seem less so. I do think that if no Democrat ever again mentions microaggressions that will have no effect on either chamber of the legislature of Oklahoma, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and every state house of the old Confederacy. I do have a more tangible theory of why the Democrats are losing, easier to prove. One, gerrymandering. Not the greatest factor in the world, but it still matters. And more so than gerrymandering, which is someone nefariously fiddling with a district's boundaries, it's just how Democrats and Republicans naturally cluster. Democrats group, Republicans spread. You add it together and you get a situation where political scientists say Democrats have to outperform Republicans by 5 to 7% in the popular vote just to get a single seat edge in the House of Representatives. Now, of course, you can't gerrymander a state. But what you can do is realize, two, smaller states have an outsized importance in our system. The Electoral College, of course, but think about the Senate. Democrats have the minority of senators, as we know, but so many more Americans voted for a Democratic senator than a Republican senator. Democratic senators represent tens of millions more Americans than Republican senators do. Why? Why? Well, Wyoming has as many senators as California. California has 71 times as many people as Wyoming. And that leads me to three. I probably should have put this one up at number one because it's this. Why are Democrats losing? They're not losing. Democrats in 19 days, I believe, will have won more votes in the House, more votes in the Senate, and we know they won more votes for president. Of those three bodies, all of which will have more Democratic votes, Republicans will rule two out of three. Why? Well, there's voter fraud, which doesn't exist, but the rules to prevent voter fraud usually mean lower Democratic turnout. Let's take Georgia. There are 53,000 voters, the vast majority of them black people who could face hurdles on election day and might have to file absentee ballots. This is not a guarantee that their votes won't eventually count, but it is an obstacle and it'll depress turnout a little bit. It'll depress voting. This is going to be a very tight race. And the estimates are that one and a half percent of the population can be affected by these rules that are enforced by Secretary of State Brian Kemp. Not a huge factor, but a dram on the scale of justice. Also in Georgia, just found this out, absentee ballots can and are being rejected if signatures don't match signatures on file. 
Does that mean they're fake? No, there's no evidence that they're fake. In fact, the people who are adjudicating whether the signatures don't match have no training in signatures. In a tight race with rules enforced by Secretary of State Brian Kemp, this could be a big factor. It's a dram, another dram, maybe dram and a half. Oh, by the way, I need to mention that Secretary of State Brian Kemp is the Republican candidate for governor this year. Another dram. Let's go to Texas. A candidate who sought to get the votes of students of predominantly black Prairie View A&M counted had an aide arrested when that aide went into the county clerk and officially registered a complaint. And then the aide wanted to take a picture of him giving the written complaint to the clerk. And then he was arrested, even though no one knows of a law this broke. The aide was questioned as to his political party. The answer is he is a Democrat and the majority of county officials are Republican. Just one race. It's just one state. Just one incident. Maybe not even a dram. Certainly a gram. Let's look at this. The Supreme Court allowed one of the parts of the Voting Rights Act to elapse in 2013. You probably knew this. So states, southern states that historically discriminated against black voters don't have to get official approval when they change voting laws. So they have been changing voting laws. And now there's a study out that looks at the effect of those changes. They've looked at 94,000 polling places. And it turns out that Lots of polling places have shut down. And when you look at the difference of predominantly black polling places that shut down and white polling places that shut down, black people will now have an increase twice as much as white people in going to the polls and getting to vote. Dram, dram, dram. I could go state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. There's not horror stories everywhere. Some states are really good about opening up and making voting less onerous for everyone, but you will also find increased hardships in voting. And those hardships are visited upon Democratic voters almost exclusively. Democratic voters are poorer. Democratic voters have less reliable transportation. They might not have official ID. Felons, felons more likely to be Democratic. So it's a quarter percent depressed vote here, a half a point difference there, and it all adds up. If all this were reformed, it wouldn't turn Kansas into California. It wouldn't turn Mississippi into Massachusetts, but it would definitely make a difference. And in a country where Democrats are already getting more votes, I think the difference it makes is in fact the difference between winning and losing. On the show today, in the spiel, I pick on a black lady. It's kind of dicey, right? Okay, hear me out. I just want to say this. In my defense, the woman in question is Amorosa. But first, Raihan Salam is a brilliant editor for the National Review. He's an extremely fair-minded conservative, and he really wants to reform the immigration system. This is a very smart guy. It all makes for a good conversation. Up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Raihan Salam is out with a new book. It won't crush you. 
with its weight, but, you know, it'll bowl you over with its import. Melting pot or civil war, a son of immigrants makes the case against open borders. Rahan used to come on this show a lot. It's great to have him back. He's the executive editor of National Review. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people, I think people of my generation, maybe older, will look at Melting Pot or Civil War as the title as something like, oh, uh, Providence or Perdition, the good thing or the bad thing. But of course, as you know, Melting Pot itself has become a microaggression. So in a way, a younger reader might see this as a threat or menace. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think the valence, how we think about the idea of the Melting Pot has changed. You know, we talk about assimilation is it happening or not? Are people learning English or not? And what I'm saying is that, well, actually, that's not quite the right way to think about it. You want to think about this in terms of class. You Mm -hmm. want to think about this in terms of people who are incorporated into the mainstream, a world in which their ethnicity does not determine their fate, versus those who are incorporated into marginalized minorities. And these are marginalized minorities where, you know, you can be second, third, fourth generation. You feel as though you're excluded from that mainstream. You feel like you're burdened by negative stereotypes, and that defines your life. Is that going on now? Because I've read a lot of scholarship on even the, however you call them, second-generation Americans. They're doing better off financially financially than their parents were. Oh, absolutely. So if you're looking at second-generation Americans, they do better than the first generation. What you see, however, is a great deal of variegation. You see heterogeneity in that second-generation population. You have a group of people whose parents came to the country typically with a lot of cultural capital. Oftentimes, they came from the elite strata of their native countries. There's that selection effect, and they're able to pass on those class-specific resources to their kids. Then you have other folks who did not come with those advantages, and in a very different economic context. They do somewhat better than their parents, but they do not reach the average. They are oftentimes still locked out of the elite strata of society. And that's why I kind of think that our existing system is actually in a way, unfair to immigrants because it's not really telling them what it's going to take for them to enter the middle class and to become full members of American society. Now, you're just projecting that they're not going to be able to enter the middle class. We're not really seeing that now yet. Well, actually, Mike, I I do disagree with you there. So if you're looking at the work of two terrific economists, Brian Duncan and Stephen Trejo, they've done very careful work on the movement from the first to the second generation. So what they do is look at different groups by national origin, right? Okay, we're looking at people from Bangladesh or Haiti or Mexico or Germany. I actually think that's the wrong way to think about it. They do that, and they're great scholars. They do that because that data is available to you, okay? But if you look at, let's say, Indian immigrants, okay, so 45% of Indian immigrants in the United States come from the upper caste groups that represent about 3% of the Indian population. The groups that represent a third of India's population represent about 1, 1.5% of Indian immigrants in the United States, okay? So if you were just looking at those groups, the groups that don't come from the top of Indian society, they're coming from the bottom of Indian society, then suddenly that picture looks different. When you're looking at any number of different national origin groups, when you're looking at it in terms of class rather than nationality, you're going to get a very different picture. I do not believe, there are a lot of people who will tell you idiotic, I'll be frank, idiotic, ridiculous stories about how, wow, Asian immigrants are great, while these Latin American immigrants aren't great. Well, guess what? When you're actually looking at the skills people bring with them to the country, there is not a difference there in that pronounced way. Right. It's if really you norm the story of what you bring. Right. If you norm everything for the capital that they arrive with. Exactly. Yeah, you'll see. And that's not surprising. Although, I think it's true, and it's been true for a little while, that Asian immigration is outpacing 
um, immigration from Latin America. Yes, and if you were a racial fetishist, you mm-hmm. would really care about that. There are a lot of people who tell me, that's an amazing story, holy cow. But actually, the deeper story is how much of the immigration is family-based rather than immigration that's based on simple, straightforward guideposts about what it is one ought to do. So here's the funny thing that happens when you have a so-called point system. There's this idea that a point system is about picking certain kinds of human beings who have certain intrinsic qualities over other people. Another way to think about it, which in my experience is a little more accurate when you look at the actual potential migrants, what it does is it tells you, oh, okay, these are things that I need to do before I decide to move to another country that are going to help me see to it that I'm not ghettoized and marginalized so that I can actually be a full participant in that society. Having a point system is actually a way of giving you a recipe or a roadmap. What we do right now as a country is mislead a lot of potential migrants into, you know, thinking about how it's going to be, what it's going to be like. There are a lot of people who come thinking, I'm going to come temporarily, and I'm going to send money back home, then I'm going to go back. And then they got caught in a trap. They get caught in a trap where the cost of living is obscenely high. They get caught in all sorts of traps. They accumulate debt. They don't necessarily have the guideposts. So when we're totally sentimental about this, we miss some of those struggles, and those struggles are inconvenient. People don't want to hear about them, Mike. It wasn't so much a misimpression maybe when they came. Our borders used to be a lot more porous. And when immigrants could go back and forth, actually, there's a lot of scholarship that shows it worked out well for both America and Mexico. Mike, you are so right about migratory immigration in the past. This was a pattern you saw in many parts of the world. It's a pattern that you kind of saw before the welfare state. Okay, so part of what happens when you have that kind of circulatory pattern of migration, circular migration, what you see happen is you send the remittances back home, okay? Then you change the communities back home. You raise the price of agricultural land. You make it actually harder. You make it so that everyone has to send someone to earn an income there. Then you make it so that you have a lot of families that don't have dads in those communities. Right? right. So actually, that circular pattern is amazing. It was really great. It worked pretty well in the 19th century, in the early half of the 20th century. In a world in which we frankly have you know, a, a welfare state, we believe in investing in human capital, we care about differences between ethnic groups. We're sensitive to those things in different ways now. So I totally agree. There is a world, you know, you could have Singapore. In Singapore, what they do is they allow this kind of circular migration. And if you become pregnant, they deport you from the country. Now, I would love to see someone say, we should do that in the United States. I know some libertarians who say we should do that in the United States. I do not believe we're a country that is literally going to deport people when they become pregnant, when they violate the terms of being circular in that way that maybe worked 100 years ago. So you're right. That is one vision people have. But people don't understand the countries that actually make that work now, like Qatar and Singapore, are countries that pursue a lot of other policies we as a country would not be comfortable with. Yeah, they're authoritarian to dictatorships also. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and there are also some countries that aren't authoritarian dictatorships that have very stringent guest worker programs that, you know, where you'll be incarcerated for violating the terms, uh, you know, of uh, you know, your immigration status. Yeah. And I just don't think we have the stomach for that. The one last thing I wanted to go back to Nor was, should we have it, by the way. Yeah. yeah. When the Trump administration trots out these so-called angel moms and makes a huge deal about the tragically the people whose uh, children were killed by undocumented, illegal, or unauthorized immigrants, when there is a government agency to document illegal crime, what does that do to the conversation? 
You know, I argued in 2015 and 2016 that Donald Trump would be bad for efforts to uh, restrict immigration, which was ostensibly one of his chief causes. Um, And the reason I made that case is because, you know, when you look historically, what are the moments when you actually had coalitions that successfully said, we're going to control immigration, we're going to adopt a new approach that is more integration friendly? Um, The way you did that was by winning over second-generation Americans, some critical mass, not necessarily an overwhelming majority, but a decent number of those folks who feel as though, hey, look, this isn't about demonizing people. This is about looking to the national interest. Now, when you're looking at Donald Trump's rhetoric, what he did very specifically was uh, really alienate a lot of people of Mexican origin by saying really awful things Mm -hmm. about people of Mexican origin. And I think that that was incredibly counterproductive. Now, My feeling is that I want to think about the world of 10, 20 years from now. I want to see to it that that world is a peaceful world where we have a more cohesive society, where we can deal with a lot of the challenges we're going to face in the future. And that's speculation. That's what I think is going to happen. But I think we're going to face bigger challenges around class stratification. I think automation is going to be a big challenge. I think there are going to be new forms of offshoring that are going to be a big challenge. And I want to be sure we're ready for that. And that's why I want to talk in ways that are a little more unifying than divisive. And I think Donald Trump wanted to achieve celebrity. He wanted to win an election. He wasn't necessarily thinking about what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years in the future. And I think in that regard, he has a lot in common with a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle. Right. Well, uh, I think you have a history of excessive optimism, which, you know, in some ways, in some ways I admire. But I'm going to read a quote to you from your book, the book you wrote with, uh, Ross Duthut in 2009, I think that came out. I believe it was 2008. Yeah, yeah. okay, so 10 years ago. You said then, I'm far more optimistic about the prospects for conservatism in large part because I see today's, this was 2008, today's anger as a transitional phase, one that will steadily work its way out in hundreds of thousands of roiling conversations in office parks, shopping malls, living rooms, and lecture halls. Yes, the Lyceum as the cooling saucer. (laughs) Reflect back on that. Were you wrong or just too early? Well, I think that we were in lots of ways right. What we warned is that if the Republican elite does not get in line with the increasingly blue-collar Republican base, you are going to have things go in a very bad, very dark direction for the Republican Party. Uh, We didn't say this explicitly, but it's something that we, uh, in the book, but we did talk about it a fair bit at the time. We believe that we would leave the Republican Party vulnerable to someone who's going to make a kind of demagogic kind of appeal uh, because the elite of the party was going to be seen as so out of touch. I think of it as the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Mm-hmm. So in the movie Ghostbusters, uh, you know, they were said, okay, you're going to choose your own destructor. Yeah. And then someone came up with, oh, okay, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, this huge creature made sure. out of marshmallows that was destroying was Manhattan. my childhood friend toasting marshmallows Ex- at Camp Lacan. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So the thing is that the Republican Party having not heeded our very wise advice, Mm -hmm. the elite of the Republican Party having not heeded that advice, they were setting themselves up for a stay-puffed marshmallow man. And Donald Trump was the guy who had a lot of free media, and he was able to do that. And similar phenotype, also. So, basically, I think that you know we anticipated that if you do not address this thing, you're going to get an outcome that is going to be very discomforting for a lot of people. That's what I'm saying in this book, too. So, I guess what you're saying, Mike, is that people ought to pay attention to my prognostication of this book. It's true that sometimes you know, I think it's useful and constructive to be optimistic. It's useful to say that, yeah, I believe I'm going to have interlocutors who will actually hear me out and we're not going to caricature my views and I'm going to try to do the same to them and we're actually going to try to strike some kind of bargain. Maybe I'm going to be wrong about that, but I think that it makes sense to hope for the best. Just a couple questions yeah. about you and your biography. 
you are the child of Bangladeshi immigrants and you grew up here in Brooklyn, here where we sit, and you write in the book that there were some, but not many, Bangladeshi, specifically immigrants, uh, that you interacted with. So you were bur- born when, 1980? I was born in a December, uh, December 29th, Oh, yeah, Dece- we have yeah. the same birthday. Yeah. That's right. Oh, I forgot. Wow. Yeah. We knew okay. this. We've yeah. talked about this. I should have remembered that. So you're born uh, December 29th, 79, uh, 2001. You're already a man. Do you think that the two outsiders, two white Americans who you interacted with, perhaps when you were growing up, the most salient aspect of your being was your brownness, your otherness, your national origin. Maybe after 2001, people would seize upon at least their perception of your religion, the fact that your last name is Salam. Might things have been very different for you? Oh, uh, it's hard, so, it's hard so to one, say, one thing that I've thought about a lot, I've actually reached out to people who are 10, 15 years younger than me for exactly that reason. Uh, I do believe that, um, you know, being a... Uh, person of South Asian Muslim origin, it was a different experience, but it's also kind of complicated, Mike, because it's not just what you're getting from the outside world, but it's kind of what you're receiving yourself in terms of your own sense of your identity, what you're afraid of, what you're attuned to, what you take as a slight or not, right? So there's one of these classic uh, debates. How should you feel when someone asks you, uh, where are you from? And then you say, I'm from Brooklyn. Then you say, no, really, where are you from? Now, is is the reaction, you know, how dare you? My God, how dare you? Not a debate in much right. of academia. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, fair, and by the way, you know, I'm not here to judge people who feel the way. Like, I get it. You know what I mean? I, I've kind of had every one of these emotions. Mm-hmm. Or is the reaction, okay, I, I'm going to try to figure out what it is this person wants to hear from me, and maybe I can complicate this person's perspective on how the world works. Maybe this person is totally thick-headed, and I'm never going to be able to do that. But maybe I can just be like, hey, I'm going to be your entry point to this whole interesting, complicated world about how this stuff works, and I'm going to really tell you my story. Do you really want to hear it? I'll really tell it to you. So I do think that there are some people um, who, in a way, have been trained to be very attuned to certain things, to certain kinds of hostility. And there are other people who think, yeah, I've gotten hostility and positivity from different people. You know, it's a little bit of a grab bag. And oftentimes that hostility is because that person had a bad day. Yeah. You know, and I was kind of the nearest punching bag, you know, right. something like that. And I think that that's certainly how I kind of saw it. But again, I can see it that way because, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy and, you know, I just... Have I feel pretty secure. If I felt less secure, if I felt more vulnerable, then maybe I'd feel differently. So I don't want to dismiss people who do feel that way. But I, I do think there's a lot that goes into it. Raihan Salam is the author of Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much, Mike. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to Slate.com slash live for tickets to that event.
Normalize. There is an annoying word, kind of overwrought, usually meant to mean something like, don't shun. Let's not normalize this. Usually sage-seeming advice that says, please remember, when you speak about this, do so in the most venomous tones possible. Let's take this sentence from Politico one year ago. Immigration activists and Hispanic lawmakers are worried Democratic leaders will give up too much ground in any deal to protect dreamers. Progressives are also chiding Schumer and Pelosi for normalizing Trump. So when you tell a politician, oh, don't normalize an opponent, you're saying, don't act like a politician. Don't deal. Don't compromise. Never make a trade that in any way can advance the agenda of your opponent, even if it means good things for your side. Telling a politician not to do his or her job, lest you normalize the opponent, is a purity test. Anyway, in the specific examples I gave, which were about Schumer and Pelosi normalizing Trump, they didn't do it, and I don't think you can do it. You can no more normalize Donald Trump than you can stigmatize the devil or monetize a bankruptcy. Oh, wait, Trump did that. So it's hard to tell someone, it's hard to tell Schumer, it's hard to tell Pelosi, don't do your job, don't get a deal favorable to your constituency, don't advance your policy goals, because that might mean normalizing, i.e. working with the opposition. People have to do their jobs. But there is this one charge of don't normalize that I think is apt. And that works when a person has no job except for trying to become normal. And that's when don't normalize is a right thing to say. And I've been watching this happen. We all have. And her name is Omarosa Manigault-Newman, who should have permanently pariahed herself, but we keep welcoming her back. Either Omarosa is just so good at playing the game of integrating herself into our culture or the tawdriness of our age knows no immunity from her. But her thoughts get credited. Her presence is somewhat celebrated. She is not only not shunned, she's flat out welcomed. Right after leaving the White House, there she was, being rehabbed, in the genre of network TV that made her. You announced the celebrities, and the big surprise to everybody is... Omarosa has gone from the White House to the Big Brother house. That is Julie Chen, who months after that would leave CBS, choosing to stand by her man, Les Moonves, calling him a, quote, kind, decent, and moral human being, this in the face of multiple on-the-record accusations of sexual assault. So, Julie Chen a one-woman normalization committee. She is the typhoid Mary of normalization. But Omarosa is the typhoid. No, that's not fair. She's more like the flu because she slightly mutates each season and penetrates our defenses. Here she is today in Slate. Slate, a fine internet magazine, responding to a Trump tweet. So Trump tweeted, for the record, I have no financial interest in Saudi Arabia or Russia for that matter. And Omarosa said, I wonder if number 45, Trump, will ever disclose how much they contributed to his inauguration, which this august magazine, Slate, credits as Omarosa makes a good point, really, about how Trump's Saudi corruption may work. Uh, Yeah, the point is good, but we don't need Omarosa to say it. We, here on The Gist, played a clip yesterday of Trump bragging about his Saudi customers. Fred Kaplan raised this exact point, too. We don't need Omarosa. Really, we don't. We don't need her on Bill Maher being asked her opinions. 
trying to elicit what was it really like in the White House? Answer, well, it's so stupidly dysfunctional that I was invited inside. Then, in the segment called Overtime, which you may not have seen, but I listen on podcasts and I do everything on two and a half speed, so I got to it. Omarosa was asked to comment on how Trump uses his rallies, and she said this. Oh, that, and he might just need a new chant leader. I mean, I've attended these rallies when we were on the campaign, and there's a guy at the rally who leads these chants, and he just like might a need a warm-up act. Absolutely, he just might need a right. new playlist instead of lock lock her up, lock her up. They might need something new to uh, say. You've attended these rallies? Oh, I, I've got some tape of a guy who leads these chants. But more importantly, do you love America? USA, 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 USA. That's her. That's Omarosa. She's that guy at the rally. I grew up on welfare and Section 8 and every other handout they could give you. And I was sold the idea that if you vote Democratic, they'll just keep handing out and handing out and things will be okay. So that was Omarosa criticizing Section 8 housing vouchers. Please, let's ask her opinion on policy. Uh, Eventually, Omarosa at this rally in Ohio eased into the role of chant leader. Not well, but with unwarranted passion. I got a little cheer. I want to teach you. Because I understand that my boss has arrived. So I want him to hear you. So for my ladies, all you're going to do is say, choo-choo, real cute, like real cute. My ladies are going to say, choo-choo, y'all got that? But I need my fellas, we're going to do a little train simulation today in Canton, Ohio. I was on a TV show the other day where two black women ripped into Kanye West and said, essentially, we're revoking your black card. You're not invited to the family cookout. It made me a little uncomfortable. I I don't really think that's how race works. But it wasn't for me to say. So I'm going to approach this next part quite carefully. I'm not revoking anyone's racial status. And I certainly don't want to speak out of turn. But let me say this. I understand how a white man, a certain kind of scared, angry, aggrieved white man, could look at Donald Trump and see him as a sort of tribune. This kind of white man I'm talking about wouldn't be excusing Trump's misogyny and racism. He'd be identifying with it. It's shameful, but I think we all can see how it how it happens. Let's take a white woman. Perhaps there's a white woman who voted for Trump because she excused his misogyny, but identified with his racism. Or maybe she didn't think too much about those issues. She just viscerally hated Hillary Clinton. Who knows? It seems deluded to you and me, but the proof is that the majority of white women did vote this way. But for you to be a black woman and vote for Trump, I'm neither of those things, obviously, and I know it's a delicate area, but according to exit polls, the vote of black women went against Trump 94 to 4. So I get that there is a kind of thrill that we in the media have in finding a person who was in Trump's thrall and then changed her mind about it. All right, a conversion story, which is a perennial and has inherent drama to it. But in order to have experienced that change of heart, Omarosa has to be a special kind of fool to be in that position in the first place. She is among the exceedingly rare 
form of voter, a black woman who has lived in America as those things and looked at Donald Trump and said, choo-choo. So please, let's remember who was spectacularly wrong and harmful to our democratic product all along. And when this person displayed a modicum of sense, let us not reward her with attention, praise, and yes, normalization. That's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Daniel is the typhoid Mary of careful audio production. It just oozes from him. And Pierre is the typhoid Mary of typhoid. What I'm saying is he has typhoid. This is my point. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She sits next to Pierre. She has thus far avoided typhoid, but she does take vigorous constitutionals on a nightly basis. That could stave off the scourge. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is no longer Steve Lichtai, actually, though today I did text with him and I said, OK, I'll mention you in the credits again, at least until the end of the week. And, you know, he was still the executive producer when we recorded the Rahan Salam conversation. What I'm saying is I'm just not ready to let go. Plus, there's this one unreturned email in my inbox subject, team member with typhoid. I'm, I'm wondering what to do about it. The gist. Wait, typhoid fever? Did I say typhoid? I think I meant Pac-Man fever, right? That's the one that's caused by a bacteria that causes belly pain, fever, constipation, possibly diarrhea until you die. Wait, oh, that was typhoid. Oomperu, deperu, and thanks for listening.